Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to 2024 and welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Data and Its Use Aren't Getting Better by Josh Zumbrun. Then Brian Gormley has an article, AI Makes Inroads in Treating Cancer. Wendell Cox wrote Biden's $3.1 billion train ticket to nowhere. Then Catherine Sire wrote, Sports betting traders juggle athletic drama, money behind it. And we'll follow that up with an article by Julia DeGanji for Happiness in the New Year, Stop Overdoing Everything. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first one, data and its use aren't getting better. When we turn to the numbers, it's often because we want to know objectively if something is getting better or worse, the job market, inflation, our health, the national mood, and so on. I've spent the better part of two years writing this column that digs deeply into the numbers in the news, where they come from, and how they're used and abused. I've come to an unsettling conclusion. The numbers themselves, including our abilities to measure these types of questions with surveys specifically, are getting worse and we aren't always using the numbers well. Our overarching problem is that so much data is based on surveys to which people no longer respond. One example is the current population survey from the Census Bureau and Bureau of Labor Statistics. The survey underpins the monthly jobs report and is very good, but its response rate has fallen some 20 percentage points this year from 90% a decade ago. Nearly every other major survey has fared worse. The White House Office of Management and Budget once articulated a standard that survey response rates should be above 80%. Today, nearly no surveys remain above that standard. Outside the government, the practice of conducting surveys by cold-calling households at random, the way surveys are explained in a Statistics 101 class, is increasingly abandoned, as it must be in a world where people no longer answer phones. Consider opinion polling. In 2000, over 90% of national polls relied on randomly calling people on the phone, according to the Pew Research Center. As recently as 2014, a narrow majority still operated this way. By 2022, fewer than 9%, or just 6 out of 69 organizations, still polled this way, Pew found. Instead, polling data largely comes from finding panels of willing respondents and repeatedly quizzing them. Many of the organizations doing this are very thoughtful. They think about how to weigh responses to match the overall population, aiming to make results as close to random surveying as possible. Journalists and statisticians still dutifully report the margin of error from these surveys. But the margin of error shows only one type of error, sampling error, 
which is how much a random sample of a certain size might differ from the overall population. Other types of error are potentially much bigger. What if the people who didn't respond to surveys are much different than those who do? What we end up with is data that's just fuzzier than it used to be. The United States statisticians I've met who work on these issues are smart and honest people. I don't think there's any conspiracies here, merely that we're kidding ourselves to believe the quality of data remains the same. Some respond by saying, but there's more data than ever before. Big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence. There's incredible promise. Alternate data sources, such as satellite data, give us a tool to observe what's really happening in untrustworthy economies. Autocrats can fake their GDP data more easily than they can fake how much pollution their factories emit. But no reputable alternate data providers claim to wholly duplicate what government agencies provide. For the foreseeable future, these are supplements, not replacements. The other big challenge facing data is how we use it. That's complicated by our current circumstances where the pandemic era still looms large. This has created an environment in which it's easy to cherry pick a starting point for data comparisons and come up with nearly any result you would like. What if one person is upset that consumer prices are far higher than they were in 2019 and another is relieved that they didn't climb as fast over the most recent 12-month period? Well, both can be right. The numbers can tell us how things moved, but they can't tell us which time frame is most salient. There's often a similar dynamic coming out of recessions, a period where things are measurably improving, but people don't realize it yet. But the disruption to our way of life in recent years was far stranger and bigger than typical recessions. It's no surprise that many people don't totally know what to make of it all. I'm not optimistic that 2024 will be a year in which the incentives are aligned for everyone to improve data quality or use the numbers in a more honest way. We're heading into a divisive election. The only point on which candidates seem to agree is that the stakes are extremely high, existential even. For many politicians, commentators, and even voters, everything must be in service to the electoral outcome. People want righteous certitude. They don't want to hear that numbers are complicated, that we need to examine them more carefully than in the past, and that we need to undertake a lot of work fixing them up. On a personal note, as 2024 begins, I'll be taking a temporary leave from this column. Though my concerns about the state of numbers are somewhat severe, I'm not abandoning the column out of despair. The reason for this hiatus is a happy one parental leave to care for my newborn daughter. For me, it's also a reminder that the most important things in life, undivided time with your kids as well as baby snuggles, first crawls, first foods, first steps and such, are things you can't measure with numbers anyway. And now AI, artificial intelligence, makes inroads in treating cancer. Biomedical startups are using artificial intelligence to predict the response patients will have to cancer treatments, aiming to increase the success of drugs in clinical trials and tailor therapies to individuals. 
As data accumulate from the clinical trials and fields such as gene and protein research, AI is helping scientists sift through large volumes of information to uncover signatures that correlate with response or resistance to treatment. Startups are using it to predict which drugs are likely to work in clinical studies and create tests to help doctors choose treatments. Venture firms are banking on the expertise of founders and their ability to get access to the data needed to develop highly predictive tests. Several companies have raised significant funding, including Artera, which disclosed $90 million in venture funding in March, Vivatine, which launched with $38 million in November, and Nabel Medicine, which revealed a $60 million financing last year. Artera, better known as Artera AI, recently in September 2022, launched a test designed to aid treatment decisions for prostate cancer patients. To train its algorithms, the company used clinical trial data for tens of thousands of patients across dozens of solid tumors, including prostate cancer, said co-executive and founder Andre Esteva. Artera's AI's test is performed on digitalized pathology slides, which are made from a biopsy of the patient's tumor. Using this information and clinical variables such as the patient's age and levels of the protein prostate-specific antigen, Artera AI provides prognostic information, for instance, on the likelihood the disease will spread or might return later, as well as predictive information on treatments likely to be effective, said Esteva. The list price for the test is $3,873, and out-of-pocket costs depend on the patient's insurance, according to the company, which intends to launch additional tests for other cancers, Esteva said. Tel Aviv-based Pajanga Biomed is partnering with drug makers seeking help with questions such as which cancers to target with treatments in clinical trials, according to CEO Tuvik Becker. Targeted cancer drugs are designed to treat patients with a specific gene mutation. Patients are tested for these mutations to determine whether they are likely to benefit. But this testing doesn't tell you the whole story, Becker said. Many other genes are also involved in a patient's response, he said. Pangea, which has raised $12 million in venture capital, examines interacting patterns of many other related genes to predict if a drug will work or not. While its revenue now comes from partnerships with pharmaceutical companies, Pangea eventually aims to make its technology available to clinicians to aid treatment decisions for patients, Becker said. Menlo Park, California-based Enable Medicine, which uses AI to generate insights in biology and medicine, recently analyzed RNA sequencing and other data to identify features associated with response to a rare form of cancer immunotherapy known as checkpoint inhibition. People who didn't respond to the treatment had increased interaction between immune cells known as CD68 plus macrophages and CD8 plus T cells, according to the company. Armed with this information, researchers can explore questions such as why these interactions correlate with a lack of response and what might be done to reverse that. CEO Sunil 
Bodapati said. And now, by Wendell Cox, Biden's $3.1 billion train ticket to nowhere. It didn't get a lot of attention, but last month the White House awarded $3.1 billion to the California High Speed Rail Project. This was supposed to be a bullet train connecting San Francisco and Los Angeles in less than three hours. Instead, its costs keep rising even as the state scales back the plan. Since 2008, when California voters authorized a $10 billion bond issue for the train, they've been sold a bill of goods. The original total estimated construction cost to taxpayers was $33 billion. That's risen to at least $100 billion. The authority decided to offer service between San Francisco and Los Angeles in Phase 1, then eventually extend the train service north to Sacramento and south to San Diego. Phase 1 was to have been completed by 2020. Within five years of the bond approval, costs had soared so high that the California High Speed Rail Authority had to adapt an emergency plan to contain them. One idea was to slow down the trains by having them share tracks with conventional commuter trains in parts of the San Francisco and Los Angeles areas. That reduced projected costs by billions of dollars, but made a mockery of the high-speed rail claim. In 2019, newly inaugurated Governor Gavin Newsom declared that because of construction complications and cost overruns, the train would initially travel only down a 171-mile segment between Merced, a 130-mile drive from San Francisco, and Bakersfield, 110 miles from Los Angeles. That segment was to cost $22.8 billion. Then the California High Speed Rail Peer Review Committee dropped another bomb. The San Francisco to Los Angeles phase would take another 15 to 20 years to build, would cost three times as much as projected, and would be unable to meet legally mandated trip times. About the same time, the nonpartisan legislative analyst's office highlighted a $10 billion to $12 billion funding shortfall for the Merced to Bakersfield segment, though only a year before the California High Speed Rail Authority's 2022 business plan had said revenues would be roughly equivalent to costs. The federal grant will pay for less than one-third of the year's cost overrun. In legislative testimony, Lewis S. Thompson, chairman of the Peer Review Committee, put the Phase I funding gap at $93 billion to $103 billion. He also noted there is at least an $8 billion increase that hasn't been counted in the Southern California segment. Even with a realistic share of new federal funding, he said, the project cannot get outside the Central Valley without added state or local funding. The legislative analyst's office agreed. Future cost escalation seems likely on the San Francisco and Los Angeles legs of Phase 1, with massive tunneling through the Tehachapi Mountains towards Los Angeles and below the Coast Range towards San Francisco. The committee concluded that there is no existing federal program anywhere near the scale or sustaining level needed. There will need to be significant and sustained additional state funding on a predictable and adequate level. 
but the legislative analyst's office has announced a $68 billion deficit, slamming that window shut for now unless more federal money is on the way. Meanwhile, Florida has a new rail system up and running between Orlando and Miami with all private financing. Florida also has a state budget surplus. And now, sports betting traders jungle athletic drama, the money behind it. Miami Dolphins wide receiver Tyreek Hill recently marked a 78-yard touchdown with an unusual celebration. He and teammates imitated riding a roller coaster, sitting on the field with their arms waving overhead. More than 200 miles away, sports betting company FanDuel Sports Trading Desk was riding its own waves that Sunday afternoon. The traders on duty, self-professed sports buff with a knack for math, were trying to predict how National Football League athletes and teams would perform that day. Sports trading desks are similar to financial trading desks on Wall Street, which enable investors to buy and sell stocks and bonds. However, the sports desks create odds to influence and entice bets in a live market where hundreds of millions of dollars are exchanged on United States athletic events. Hill's second long run into the end zone meant a $68,000 hit to the sports book on customer bets on whether he would score the first touchdown of the game. Immediately, bettors' money started rolling in on Hill to score more touchdowns and gain more yards. The Dolphins ended up trouncing the Washington Commanders 45-15. to FanDuel lost $1 million on the game. You have good days, bad days, said Will Twin, a lead fan dual sports trader that day. It's really about getting the prices right and let the cards fall where they may. Sports betting has become big business for gambling companies, sports leagues, and media outlets over the past five years. By the time your finger taps the glass of a smartphone screen to place a bet, a sportsbook trading desk powered by algorithms and raw data on past and current games has made its best guess on what is likely to play out on the field. FanDuel's algorithm simulates each play of a football game 10,000 times to try to predict the outcome, who might score a touchdown or how many yards a wide receiver might get. While financial markets typically operate within set trading windows, sportsbooks add new markets, additional betting offerings, around the clock. If a trader needs to step away for a quick break, another steps in. On a recent Sunday, FanDuel took in more than $200 million in bets in NFL games. That figure is the total amount customers placed in bets that day before winnings were paid out. As one FanDuel trader rushed to shift the Dolphins' odds after Hill's touchdown, another monitored the New England Patriots' matchup with the Los Angeles Chargers. Patriots running back Rashid Moore Stevenson had to be helped off the field after an ankle injury. The trader immediately started adjusting the odds, making it more likely that Stevenson's backup would score. That's information we didn't know 15 minutes ago, Twin said. Sports betting companies must strike a balance between protecting the business bottom line and setting prices, the possible winnings, 
appealing enough that customers will want to make a bet. The more accurately a company can predict what will happen, the more money they stand to make. It is a science and an art. Just as financial trading desks pipe in security prices from stock exchanges, sports desks rely on data feeds from the NFL. FanDuel says it takes about 1.5 seconds to receive the data point, what happened on the field, and about one second for its model to process the data and push out new odds. That information travels faster than the game broadcasts and streams viewers watch at home. The basic tenet of gambling that the house always wins lives on. While any given day might be a win or a loss for a sports book overall, FanDuel says it makes about 11.5% in revenue from the total bets it accepts after paying out winning bets. FanDuel is owned by Flutter Entertainment, a Dublin-based gambling operator with popular brands in Europe and Australia. FanDuel was a daily fantasy sports company when the Supreme Court issued a ruling in 2018 that ushered in a new era of gambling in the United States. States beyond Nevada could legalize sports betting, and many state governments rushed in. For Flutter and FanDuel, the challenge was establishing a trading desk from a talent pool in the United States with little experience in sports betting. Twin, who started as a trader at Flutter's sports bet in Australia, moved to the United States in 2019. He left the company shortly after the Dolphins' Commanders game. On a recent Sunday, when several NFL games were scheduled to start at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, traders in Flutter's offices in Dublin took the first shift. They monitored pregame news from around 2 a.m. Eastern Time and began adjusting the day's odds. The Jersey City traders then took over, and by Sunday night football, the sports book was in the hands of traders in Melbourne, Australia. Ed Miller, who co-founded a company that automates sportsbook pricing for gambling companies, said the modern sportsbook is a far cry from Las Vegas-style sports betting in which human bookmakers made the calculations and you might find a whiteboard with the game's odds written on it. FanDuel, which is going head-to-head with DraftKings for the number one position in the sports betting market, asserted its dominance with the help of a now ubiquitous product the single-game parlay. A better can string together several bets on one game, including how specific players will perform. The chances of winning that each leg of the parlay will happen in the game lean heavily in favor of the house. The appeal of a big cash-out, though, has maintained its popularity. For example, when the Baltimore Ravens played the Jacksonville Jaguars on December 17th, FanDuel offered a seven-leg parlay on how five-star players would perform in passing yards, receiving yards, rushing yards, and touchdowns. A $10 wager would win $457. The athletes' performances didn't pan out that way, and no customers won. A more straightforward bet that total points scored in the game would be more than 41.5 generated about $9 in winnings, on a $10 bet. And now let's follow this, these articles up with one more. For happiness in the new year, stop overdoing everything. Each new year, we pledge to transform our bodies, improve our careers, organize our homes, and develop new hobbies. 
we dedicate ourselves to doing more, more exercise, more work, more activities, and social engagements. On its face, striving for more sounds pretty good, but it also has a dark side that we need to resist. As a neuropsychologist, much of my work focuses on how people respond to stress. I often find myself helping people understand the effects of self-defeating behaviors that I call the overs. It's a familiar list, overworking, overachieving, overthinking, overexplaining, overgiving, overcommitting, and overaccommodating. We engage in the overs to create psychological safety for ourselves. They're a form of nervous system regulation. When you feel anxiety, stress, frustration, or uncertainty, it's because threat networks in your brain have activated. You're afraid. To restore balance, you engage in compensatory behaviors designed to alleviate your fear. You may think, for example, that you overwork so your boss won't get mad at you, but the deeper explanation is that you overwork to relieve the stress you feel in the face of that prospect. All too often, however, the overs themselves become a primary source of psychological danger in our lives. In my work with high-achieving individuals, they often agree that all their overfunctioning feels bad to them, but they insist they need to continue overdoing it in order to stay safe, or as they put it, to stay relevant or on top. Regardless of the semantics, the underlying neurobiology is the same. Overdoing is a form of self-protection. The problem is it becomes bad for us. Consider overachieving, the unrelenting drive for high performance. The conventional wisdom is that striving to be one's best is a form of resilience that makes us more productive. Recent research suggests otherwise. A 2018 meta-analysis of 25,000 people conducted by Donna Harari and colleagues and published in the Journal of Applied Psychology, found no relationship between actual performance and the perfectionism typical of overachievers. In other words, constantly striving to be the best performer doesn't make you the best performer, but it does carry serious costs in terms of mental and physical health. A 2017 study by a team of Chinese researchers found that perfectionism was related to greater anxiety and depression. Researchers at Vanderbilt University examined the relationship between overachieving and reward-relating neurocircuitry and reported in a 2012 study that overachievers had higher levels of dopamine, a neurotransmitter related to both motivation and addiction. The brain can create powerful cravings that perpetuate our overfunctioning. The more you overfunction, the more you want to overfunction. Well, take another example, overthinking. If overthinking worked, it would allow us to solve more problems in our lives. But research shows the opposite is true. Overthinking is linked to poorer decision-making, greater interpersonal problems, and more distress. The point of thinking about our problems is to reduce our problems, not to exacerbate them. To break the grip of the overs in the coming year, it's imperative to see them for what they are, forms of safety thinking. We think that if we overachieve or overthink, then they can't harm us. Other people can't get mad at us, dominate us, or reject us. But the reality is that when we chronically overdo it, we harm ourselves. 
with real consequences for our mental and physical health. Thinking more intelligently about the deeper psychological needs behind our behavior can help us find needed balance. Here are three simple strategies to help you stop overdoing it in your life. Number one, decide on a new boundary and expect it to feel bad. To stop overdoing, plan for some feelings of distress to emerge temporarily as you behave in a more balanced ways. Overfunctioning is a hypervigilance strategy, a way that your brain organizes your behavior to protect you from potential danger. For example, if you decide to stop checking email after 7 p.m. in the new year, your brain will sound an alarm after 7 p.m. What if there's an important message you missed? What if the boss gets mad at you? If you respond to the urge, you will reinforce the very behavior you are trying to change. But if you commit to your new boundary, your brain will habituate rather quickly. One of the most effective ways to overcome fear is through habituation. Habituation simply means repeatedly exposing yourself to something that initially frightens you, and after repeated exposures, your brain learns that the thing is not dangerous. Number two, recognize the difference between danger and dislike. As you start to create these new boundaries, there may be real consequences. For example, if you stop over-accommodating your friends, family, and co-workers, they may become frustrated with you. It's natural to dislike that, but it does not mean it's dangerous. Research shows that people overestimate the negative consequences of their decisions. What will harm you is chronically avoiding the negative feelings that your decisions may generate. Avoiding and denying takes tremendous amount of psychological energy and often changes our lives for the worse. Take PTSD. If someone was traumatized in a military convoy, the pain of PTSD often sets in later when, for example, they feel like they have to avoid ordinary activities like driving on suburban streets. People avoid these things not because the activities are dangerous, but because they believe their feelings are. Although PTSD is an extreme example, a similar logic applies to our regular lives. Although we may think facing our feelings is dangerous, the opposite is true. We find relief when we're able to distinguish real danger from mere dislike. And number three, consider that you might be the most dangerous person in your own life. In my work, this is the concept that produces the most profound shifts for people. Often we overfunction because we feel like the other isn't safe, that another person will reject, harm, or disappoint us. When you repeatedly attempt to restore your sense of psychological safety through other people, through their validation, permission, or mood, You might feel better temporarily, but you ultimately destabilize your own sense of safety. You have persuaded yourself that what is necessary to regulate your nervous system isn't your own inner authority, but someone else's permission. As a result, you're not in charge of how much you work, give, or do someone else's. This is a perennial recipe for overdoing it. Instead, we need to recognize that the most powerful determiner of our own safety is no one but ourselves. So much about changing habits for the new year is based on the conventional wisdom that you need to do more to be better. And yes, growth is desirable. 
But often we say we're after growth when the truth is we're running from fear. When we pay more conscious attention to how our brains drive our behavior, we have the opportunity to build what we're really all after, an enduring sense of inner security. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.